On this episode of Jim Questions Everything, I speak with Rockman Branch. He goes by Rock. And to me, that underscores the kind of person he is. And Rock, well, he kind of rocks my world a little bit in this conversation. You see, we talk about race, we talk about anti-racist efforts, and the implications for our children. When we discuss learning loss, because that's like the big thing now, is, oh my God, there's so much learning loss happening. Nah, children are learning. Children are absolutely learning. Right now, this has been a year where they've learned a lot about race. Along the way, I realized I was forced to ask myself, how have I come to understand racism and my role in it? Rock helps me see things in new ways, and he also asks me questions that I wasn't expecting, but I'm much better off for having tried to answer. This episode runs a little longer than expected, but that's because we cover a number of really important issues in a deep and powerful way. Conversations like this don't come along very often, at least for me, so they deserve depth, they deserve time. So I hope you'll take time to listen deeply to the questions that Rock and I grapple with. With that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Rockman Branch. I have to tell you, I'm equal parts excited and nervous to talk to my guest here, Rachman Branch. I know him personally as Rock, and I think as you get to know him, you will find him to be exactly that, a rock for the people in his world, the students and the teachers that he serves. He's a pretty special guy, so I feel it's really special to have you here. Rock, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jim. You know, the name of my podcast is called Jim Questions Everything. And when I have a guest on, I'll say Jim Questions Samantha Reichard or Jim Questions Kayla Sims. Mm -hmm. Jim Questions Patty McLean. It so happens I have had three white women as my first guests. Gotcha. I have you, an African-American man. And I just somehow this morning realized the notion of Jim Questions african American man. I don't know. Does it land differently? And I started to have a sweat. I was like, oh my God, we got to talk about some of this language stuff. That's the whole point here. Was there ever a moment when you were like, I don't know about the naming of this? Nah, I actually, until you brought it up, um, I didn't even peep the pattern of, you know, Jim questions, you know, a room for the white women before this, right? So I mm -hmm. just, and, and I think it's, you know, I don't have a, so Full stop. I don't have a problem with the name at all because <laughs> that's um, good because I'm committed to it. But yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, I think that the questions that you know, as you question me, more questions will be unearthed, and more times than not, I've existed in a space where questioning me has resulted in the person offering up the questions, doing reflections, and, re and questioning themselves. Um, so I think it, you know, it's just comfort level, and I appreciate the thoughtfulness, but. Yeah, the name is pretty awesome to me, and uh, and I don't have an issue with that. You know, well, well I think I, lots of things should be questioned. I appreciate that, and that is that is the the spirit with which I came up with this name, which is the intent is to not question others on their value systems, but really to ask questions in a way to question my own. But you know, here I am, white guy questioning a black man. Just for a second, I had to pause and think. Am I okay with this? But, you know, breaking it down with you mm -hmm. helps me feel okay about it. 
for the listeners, but, I just offer this up as a black man. I am I am not unfamiliar with white men questioning me. Right. So it's not unfamiliar territory to be in. Yeah, I can imagine. Whereas yeah. whereas it would be for me. Let's let's call that how yes. it is. And so one of the things that, you know, having known you for a while and some of your colleagues in this work, I can't say as let's say five years ago, I would have been equipped to have that question in my own mind. And I yeah. certainly would not have been equipped to actually talk about it. And I think right. that's pretty interesting. And I think that's a lot of your work in education has been helping people come to these conversation. Tell me a little bit about what you do for a living. I do a few things actually, I wear, wear several hats. I, uh, I work with a wonderful organization called CT3 where I'm an associate there and I, I support uh, leaders and I support uh, teachers with real-time teacher coaching or real-time leadership coaching. Um, really structured and the thought processes exist around you know, pedagogy, around, you know, some some um, really strong leadership pushes. Then in my, you know, in my separate life, I do all sorts of training and support around anti-racism, around people really questioning, you know, no play on words, but really questioning their own path for success as they've outlined it. And now ultimately wanting to be way more mindful the evolution that's happened in our country. I've gotten lots of uh, lots of opportunities to serve in positions that drive people's thinking as it pertains to race, gender equity, DEI, but a more aggressive and active stance going towards anti-racism. Can we spend some time with that? Because the the language is familiar to us in many ways, but the nuances are becoming, I think, a little bit more complex. When you talk about racism, no one Mm, well, <laughs> got to be careful about speaking in absolutes, don't I? Uh, few people would self-identify as a racist, but I think it's also fair to say that few people would self-identify as an anti-racist. Although, I'm thinking out loud here, so stay with me. Maybe the opposite is true. Maybe few people would identify as a racist, but everyone would identify as an anti-racist. Oh, that's interesting. And here's the problem, I bet. What qualifies you to be an anti-racist? Help me understand that a little bit. If we're talking about what anti-racists are, they're, I guess, categorized by what they do. And it's a very overt, direct, and clear position that you take in your daily actions to fight against what we recognize as country's inception, you know, kind of came from, which is systemic racism. Um, it is to make sure that with every waking moment, with every breath you breathe, the work that you do brings with it the understanding of where you exist in the American caste system that is, you know, not always identified and, and recognized, how you utilize your privilege to the benefit of others who are receiving racist actions and exist in a racist society. And to what degree you're willing to now look at how your resources are dispersed around the fact that there's been inequity for your, my, our entire life and recognizing why we can't undo what's been done. How do we do everything else differently now? You led with a really compelling point for me and something I've heard you talk about before and, and I've heard others talk about in the same way, which is the, it's about not just what you believe, but but about what you do. Absolutely. So being an anti-racist doesn't stop at being in opposition to racism. That's actually right. kind of easy. 
for a lot of folks to say, well, I'm not a racist. Right. Okay, fine. That is perhaps the least possible or the minimum possible standard you could meet to be a functioning human being Yeah. to simply not be a racist. But the push behind anti-racism movements is to be overt and to actually take action. And I think that's important because maybe there's the risk of people declaring they're anti-racist, but they're not actually acting on that. Are you seeing a lot of that in schools? Absolutely. So, so I've always, and here's the weird thing, during, during my time as a, as a principal, um, during my time in education and youth development, when people ask me you know, what I do or who I am, I'd often say I'm a liberator. And education is just the tool I'm using at the moment. You know, anti-racism and liberation, they, they share a similar space, but in education specifically, um, I find lots of people want to say they're an anti-racist, but they never really recognize, I don't think people really understand what the cost is. You know, there's a poet who, who once said, uh, the cost is death when you're paying for your freedom you know, and not to be overly dramatic and say that's what we have to pay. But, you know, there is great sacrifice that has to come when you want to work in a space that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's easy to say. It sounds good in a speech. It looks even better in a in a document. But the, the personal sacrifice um, in the education space that I've had to coach as a principal and after my principalship, I've had to coach people through. I don't think they're really ready for. For example, you know, I work with lots of young people, lots of young educators who come out of their teacher prep programs who want to come to my school and be a teacher because education is the new civil rights movement, right? And I heard that a million times, but then you're afraid of the young man sitting in your classroom and you allow that fear to now dictate how you move and act and behave around these young people. Well, now all the anti-racism, all the civil rights, you know, movement stuff you spoke about, you're now challenged with actually, you know, engaging with a 14-year-old young man that you're automatically afraid of. Can't claim anti-racism doing that kind of action. Instead, what you have to do is, you know, go to the woodshed and get your learn, right? And get, you have to get your, your education, your learning around what you have to do because there's nothing wrong with that Black child in front of you. It's really what's, you know, how you were groomed and how you were developed that's creating the disconnect between you and the student. So these young teachers might, you know, and I would say it's, this is not exclusive to, to young teachers, but we happen to be talking about some of the folks you work with. Cause I think uh, what I want to say is a lot of those young teachers, but frankly, a lot of us are conditioned by systemic racism to behave and respond in a certain way, whether you might see that in the composition of a neighborhood in the delivery of services and the depiction in media and news coverage. I guess I want to ask in some ways for that 22 year old wide-eyed blonde teacher who gets tense around a tall, young black 14 year old. I, I almost hesitate to say this, but can you blame her in some ways? How do you go about helping her see this for what it is? Partly it's on her, partly it's on the surround. I don't want to absolve her. But so, I want to understand that a little bit more. What's your what's the move that you make to help her through that process? So to answer your question, you can absolutely blame her. You right can on. absolutely blame her because um, if we if we follow the trajectory of that young that young teacher, he or she has been in 
a process of critical thinking for most of their life, but definitely in their college career, mm. especially if there's some if they're from some of these uh, you know uh, teacher prep programs that we know only recruit at certain schools. They they absolutely have engaged in a critical thinking process, so that's a skill set they have. They've made a decision to not do the introspective work and the critical thinking skills haven't been applied to their own belief system. And so you can absolutely blame them. Now you don't leave them in that position of blame. You identify the issue, the trajectory that they can now move to for their own growth and you support them in the plan to get there. I've seen more people resist getting there than I'm comfortable saying. And so because they're, because they're, their growth isn't something they want to engage in because it makes them question themselves, their upbringing, their families, their community, which looks dramatically different from the one that they're in. I see lots of teachers leave the profession because, you know, when we talk about anti-racism in education, it is a heavy lift. It is a deep dive. It's all those cool phrases that Ed Reformer picked up over the last decade. It's the hardest work you'll ever do because you're questioning yourself. And that's and that's devoid of color. I want to be really clear about that, Jim. I'll tell you a very quick story. I had a teacher who was a 3.89 math major from an Ivy League school. Came to my school, I had challenge upon challenge upon challenge, and said to me in a conference one day, these kids just don't. And I stopped her right there. And as we're having deeper conversation, I said to her, well, you know, you got a 3.89 from an Ivy League school, which pretty much tells me you've always gotten it right. You've pretty much always landed on the correct answer. She, and she kind of was like, yeah, yeah, it's true. I said, well, what happens when you don't? She said, well, you know, I, I, but I pretty much do. I said, well, what happens when, it, when it's difficult or you don't? Well, I go back, I study, I rethink what I did wrong and I figure it out and I go back in there and get it right. So I stopped and just kind of stared at her. Her blockage kept her from going, yeah, but her response, what does that have to do with what I'm doing now, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the point where her critical thinking skills, she refused to put the lens on her. But once she did, she began to realize similar to every tough professor at this Ivy League, similar to every math problem in, in my grade school and high school, I have to go back, figure out what I have to do differently, just like a math equation, to serve these students properly. And she's a Black woman, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so, and so her upbringing was very different from the population she served. Mm -hmm. So she carried lots of those beliefs that our society has pumped into our heads about who poor and black are, who poor and Latino are, but it's a it's a math that no one wants to do on themselves because you have to then strip yourself of everything, kind of dig deep around the lies you've been told, not intentionally, but the lies you've been told nonetheless. You know, so so it's I don't want to relegate to just you know our white counterparts, but but there's a healthy portion of them who who don't do the work as well. Yeah, no doubt. I suppose it is a trap we fall into, which is you know, talking about race in the construct of black and white, but really in many ways, we're also talking about race as a companion to equity, bias, perception, and lies that have been told about people who are unfamiliar to you. It really is easy to make assumptions or even just denigrate without meeting uh, people who are 
from a different background. And then you've got me thinking clearly, excuse me, clearly you've got me thinking. <laughs> I don't know if I'm thinking clearly, but that's the whole point of this exercise. And the nature of your work is to get people thinking. And one of the things that, that you just mentioned was, you know, you're forcing people in the best possible way to confront the lies that have been told to them through the very curriculum that they were served starting off as kids through the college enrollment process through the professors who cared more about whether they understood the subject matter than they did about whether those prospective teachers understood the kids they were going to teach what are some of the big lies that you've had to help people understand were exactly that poverty is a choice is a huge lie um, lots of people believe that and this still exists in my, you know, not just during my teaching and principal years, but also during my coaching years. Lots of people believe that children are in the predicament they're in because of decisions that children have made. I've seen adults make zip codes, jail sentences. And they do that by deciding who is and who isn't worthy of opportunities of access, of resources. And, and the fight has been twofold. It's been coaching up the people who are interested in growing and learning and being better in that space. And the fight has also been extracting those who aren't. And in my in both my careers, I've been very keen on allowing a very short amount of time to determine which person, which category the person in front of me falls into, because it's too important for children to let somebody's meandering on the topic cost them an opportunity, cost them their life. I was a principal who, who had to bury 56 of his students and who had to go to 56 funerals. So I, I don't mix words and I don't waste time with the emotions of adults when trying to work towards the lives of children. And so it, look, and so it, looks, very, it looks very different for the one who's desirous of, of success and growth. There's constant conversation about the path they have to walk, uh, about the learning they have to do, about the perspectives they have on the young people, and really about the moves they have to make to engage young people better. And for those who don't believe that they have to grow, who instead believe that black and brown children have a genetic predisposition to screw it up, you know, a genetic predisposition to failure, I make very quick work of them with no apology. As well, you should. You should make quick work of them. But how long does the work take for those who are willing? Because this is not a lecture that then <laughs> transforms practice. You're, you're working against a tide in the form of uh really like 16 years worth of training for some yeah. of these folks to be a teacher and in that 16 years worth of training by the between the time they were in k-12 college maybe masters mm -hmm. they've learned a lot of the wrong things mm -hmm. or they haven't been well so they've not only learned a lot of the wrong things they haven't been meaningfully confronted to challenge their views, to change their views. So all of a sudden they have, these conditions have like a 16 year head start on you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so what's the journey like for someone to come through this process? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think about specifically um, a group of teachers that I worked with. Um, my last year as an assistant principal, and you know, basically before I became the principal, and they were they were the willing, they were the coalition of the willing. They were the ones who really wanted to make change happen. And because of their willingness, we went through some very hard times. And as an example, these were people who had challenges in belief, right? They were ones who had, you know, some some fear of the young people that they served, but they knew the fear was their problem, right? So, you know, the long and short of it is, I, you know, I was very clear, we have this year. If you don't cut it this year, you won't be back next year because I'm not going to sacrifice this child's year for your learning. And so it was probably the most intense, most hands-on time of leadership in my career because I had teachers who not only were, you know, pretty strong, but also were pretty scared. Now, you know, as an example, you know, probably four foot 11 teacher, you know, would have children my size. I'm six foot five, 300 plus pounds, right? Have kids my size, you know, who get upset and, you know, would, you know, slam things or yell or what have you. And they would stand up to these kids and say, you know, you got to do X, Y, or Z, right? And they'll, they'll back the kid down into a space where they're now redirected and doing their work. But that teacher would then, you know, have to leave the room. And as the assistant principal, they would tag me in. I'd come take over the class. They'd go to my office where I had an overstocking of Kleenex. And they would have breakdowns in my office because it was scary. It was tough. It was something they never did before, but they knew they had to do it in the moment. And then they had to decompress at another time. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so, you know, those were the people who, who, you know, I stood shoulder to shoulder with because they knew the work was on them. They knew the work was incumbent upon them to do because this child deserves more. There were other teachers who didn't feel like they needed to commit that level of engagement, that level of, you know, uh, with itness. And those are the ones who, you know, who found their way, you know, to another school, another school district, Nordstrom spraying cologne or whatever it was, right? Like, <laughs> I, there were, and it was, it was very yeah. clear. So, you know, the teachers who were committed, you know, myself, and as I became the principal, lots of my leadership team members, we identified who they were and we played them really close, right? Like some of our teachers, we knew you're here for two years to clear your debt and to, you know, go off to grad school. And so we're gonna give you very prescriptive actions to do with children, because we're not gonna leave you to your own devices with these children. So some people got scripts, some people got direct support, hand on their back, pushing them, hand on their bottom, supporting them and pushing them along. And then others got, you know, um, the one ads in their in their inbox. They got the Washington Post, you right. know, uh, in their in their mailboxes in the on Monday mornings. Yeah, just so so you don't spend a lot of time managing the adult learning. What you do is you look for the right people when you hire them. You look for them um, through your questioning. I can teach lots of skill. I need to see the right kind of will in people mm-hmm. when they come in. And it wasn't just an interview with me. My my students interviewed them. Parents interviewed them. We made sure that they saw everyone and everyone saw them before we decided if you go to the next step, which was finally meeting with me to determine if they're going to be here. As a leader who's buried 56 young people, yeah. uh, I'm 
I'm still processing that. That has stayed with me because that's a part of your story I was not familiar with. But that that to me underscores why you have such a sense of urgency about this work. Right. It's work that lasts a long time. You've been at this for a long time, but you've never wavered on a sense of urgency around it because you can't give adults the luxury of time to get through this process if it means the number goes from 56 to 57 to right. 60 to 70 because that's what happens yeah absolutely when you right. wait and that's that's a big deal and i i applaud you for your work i want to unpack something about what's happening right now mm. i want to shift gears a little bit still in the context of education yeah. And gosh, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Which is the trial. And for those of you who might be listening at a later date, there's a the prosecution has just rested in its case against an officer who was recorded killing a black man, George Floyd. Yeah. Here's the thing I want to mm, talk about with you, question a little bit. It was 1991. I think was the year when I was a student teacher, Rock. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching high school English at a school district just outside of Boston. And the O.J. Simpson trial, mm -hmm. trial of the century was on. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and I just can't believe it now, but maybe you can. But I remember at that school, the district decided they would broadcast the verdict. 94. 94. And I remember because, yeah, it's 94. Oh, no, it's 94. Right. It was 94. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm not as old as I thought I was. Thank you for that. That's a gift. I appreciate that. So thank you. It was 94. Okay. All right. But whatever the year. Yeah. Imagine, okay, if you will, the district said, because of all of the interest in this case, we feel like it would be a moment for the right. schools to turn on the TV and watch the reading of the verdict. And when the verdict came through, everyone cheered and screamed and went, oh my God, I can't believe it. And it was wild. And we got nothing done the rest of the day. Right. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I would bet my life that that same district will not be broadcasting the verdict right. for this yeah. former police officer. And I just am having, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but man, I don't even know how to process the difference between the two. Help me understand this a little bit. I think the challenge with both, you know, what happened back then and now is that very few people are, and it's not a matter of skill, very few people, people are willing to go into the brave space of discussing these outcomes. There's a skill you have to have, but the skill to me, and I'm by no means the expert, the skill is just around your emotional intelligences and your your uh, your people skills and being comfortable expressing your lived experiences versus hyperbole and rumor and things you've heard. I, and I think, you know, in these spaces, we have to be braver to have those conversations. I say that because in education today, and I talk to principals about this all the time, when we discuss learning loss, because that's like the big thing now is, oh my God, there's so much learning loss happening. Nah. Children are learning, you know, children are absolutely learning. Right now, this has been a year where they've learned a lot about race. Mm. 
and we haven't been intentional in our conversations with them, um, whether it is the dramatic push behind the election this November, whether it's the, the attack on our nation on January 6th at the Capitol, whether it's, you know, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and, you know, now, you know, Dante Wright. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, we see our white counterparts and mass school shootings. And we were trying to juxtapose, well, this guy got shot with nothing in his hand. This guy mowed down a bunch of people in a school. So we know he has something. And, and so we're, children are learning and, and, and children are highly socially intuitive. They're getting what we're not saying. They're hearing it loud and clear. And the tough part about this trial and the conversation that has to come from this, no one's equipped, no one's even preparing for the conversation, whichever way it goes. We're just gonna let it happen. And then we're gonna let them learn via the world that we mm. live in, which still hasn't reconciled its greatest felony, right? Which is, which is racism in America. So, so we got, we're going to continue to kick the can up the street because, you know, children haven't been given the opportunity to heal and grow and learn from this. Instead, all the same stuff gets reinforced. That's the hard part about these, these race conversations. When nothing changes, everything is reinforced, which is exactly how a faction of our country wants it to be. Nothing changes the way it should. That's a, that is a genuine problem. There's, there's so much inside of that. But I really like how you draw out the fact that back in 94, 95, 2021, we're still not equipped to have that conversation inside our schools, not in a not in a way that's systemic. I mean, there are some schools for sure that do it, that are able to have it and actually might broadcast the outcome of this trial specifically so they can. But you're talking about 116,000 schools, 54 million kids. Right. That's a fraction of a percent that might be ready to do that. You know, and thinking in listening to you talk, I'm thinking back to the spectacle that was the O.J. Simpson trial. And I think it's worth noting major differences. One, it was a black man on trial for murder. If he had been convicted, I bet the sentiment would have been, well, that's what you get. Justice was served. Right. Justice was served. He shouldn't have done it. Right. Now, what happens if this former police officer who I, I don't want to give him the honor of naming him, but is acquitted, then I could see the narrative being if only George Floyd had complied. And there's just, Absolutely. you know, so it's interesting. So now I have some processing to do when I won't fall asleep tonight, because I'm thinking about this conversation. Yeah. You know, I had this moment of like grouping the OJ Simpson trial together with the George Floyd trial, but you just take a minute and you think oh, there's so many differences between the structure of those incidents and the way in which the uh, legal system and law enforcement handle them. They're actually, they're not even, they don't belong in the same paragraph. They're just so fundamentally different. But I suppose it's in having this conversation that I can work through that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? The way I just thought yeah, that out loud? Yeah, no, I, I follow you, man. And I'll, I'll tell you this. You know, the amazing thing about the public outcry in both situations and in, in, in the OJ case, which is, you know, it, it's an exhausting thing in and of itself. 
we point to, oh no, because the evidence says this and this and this. And, and so no matter which side of the line you're on, you can point to all the evidence, which, you know, circumstantial because we're trying to decipher what happened, right? On the other side, we've seen these men on camera kill mm. these black men. Mm. And we and so and so to me, the imbalance is we can we have to argue the OJ situations of the world, mm. but we're looking right at you know the evidence of these men killing, you know, being killed by these men and women being killed by police right. officers. Right. And and we're we're trying to convince people, you know, don't believe your lying eyes. Mm. And, and that's that's the part that's difficult to digest. That's the part that you know makes me say, yeah, you know, this is this is a problem that white people, white America has, quite frankly, around this issue. Because somewhere in you know, in the in the card catalog of their brain there is a hierarchy of, of life. There's a hierarchy of, of this population. And there's a, there's a phrase that, that, that goes something to the degree of, you know, the complexion for the protection, right? And, and quite frankly, George Floyd does not have the complexion for the protection. You know, unfortunately, the victims in the OJ trial absolutely had it. And so even though he's found not guilty, we have absolutely prosecuted and found guilty that gentleman in, in public society. Yeah. We found our own ways to make him pay, if you will. That's, I mean, a, that's a really good point. Yeah. That that idea that that he was gonna pay one way absolutely. or the other. Absolutely. But you know, but there there are a bunch of cops who on camera beat Rodney King and countless yeah. others from ninety one till now. I was just yeah. thinking exactly that. Why didn't my mind and I'm and I'm pretty pissed at myself. I'm not going to lie to you. But why didn't my mind? Oh, I know actually why. Actually, okay. So I'll give myself this one little pass, which is I was trying to equate my experience in a school classroom, and that's why OJ popped into my head because I yeah. was in a classroom teaching. So okay, so that's why I came to that. But it's funny because just about a minute ago, while you were talking, I thought, why didn't my mind go to Rodney King? Which is actually, you know worth dissecting maybe not here but just for me to process how comfortably i just equated black and white law enforcement incidents to as like grouped together when in fact they're just they're so different for for so many reasons not only the roles that the characters play in these awful tragedies but also the the fact that there's just there's video there's just it's straight in front of you and it's interesting to to hear the language shift over time around George Floyd from the death of, of Mr. Floyd to then shifting. And this is also part of my own language. Mm -hmm. It's like, so this man died, this man was killed, this man was murdered. Yeah. And I see it actually in the media, the way it's played out. There's a columnist here in my local newspaper who this morning wrote about that trial and said, I've seen the video, I've seen him murdered multiple times. That word murder is pretty loaded because, but it's just so fascinating to, and heartbreaking to think about the, the nature of our language and how comfortably some of us, like me, pale white guy, use language and we have to, we have to keep it in check. It's a process, man, it is a process. Well, you know, the tough thing about it, Jim, is that, is that nowadays it's, it's amazing how 
when you talk about language and keeping it in check, we'll have a moment where we will use one one set of vocabulary for the accused if they're black. Mm. We'll use another set of verbiage for the accused if they're white. I offer up that our system, our, our criminal justice system, our systemic racism problems are so deep. And that's an unconscious thing mm. that writers do, that the media does. I don't think no one's saying we're going to call, you know, someone who's a black accuser, you know, if he's accused of a crime, the attacker, but we're going to call the white person accused of a crime, the, the misguided and troubled youth. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's so entrenched that we naturally are pouring out words to that degree. Aren't we constantly softening yeah. the mass murderer who had a bad day? Yeah, uh, yeah, or yeah. Burger uh, King, right? Right, right. I mean, that's that's it is kind of terrifying. Let me ask you a, another question about language. You got me thinking about, mm-hmm. uh, which is the use of the of different phrasing. So, so let me let me give you some context. Right. Uh, you and I have known each other a little while. I've right. I've consciously walked towards issues in language so that I could get more comfortable with it. Uh, I'm telling you, five years ago, well, maybe ten years ago, mm-hmm. if you wanted to talk about uh, students of color, I would have stayed in that lane and I wouldn't have been comfortable saying we're talking about black and brown kids. Right. And I think because of privileged white person, I, I couldn't have given language to this at the time, Rock, but now I can. I felt maybe it was out of my comfort zone, but now I understand the importance of naming things and people and cultures for what they are. So I'm much more comfortable saying, look, we've got to do a better for serving our black and brown youth. But here's what's interesting. So we've got different philosophies on the naming conventions we use. So black and brown colleagues, for example, Mm -hmm. I'm seeing increasing use of BIPOC, so black indigenous people of color, as a way to more comprehensively be inclusive. But I'm also hearing in a conversation that I listened to you a few weeks ago, the global majority, because across the globe, Whites are the minority when you factor in the human population. Right. And so there's an educator we were listening to, and it really got me thinking about her referring to her black and brown youth as global majority. So how are you seeing the language shift? And to what extent is that a reflection of good thinking or stilted thinking? What's, what's happening there in, in the language that we're using? I recognize the intent, right? And I appreciate the intent. However, I think that the challenge in this is that that we have to own a few things and by no means am I having a, your blues ain't like mine moment, right? But in America, we have a real, like we have to own the fact that there is a anti-black white supremacist movement that has existed since the country's inception, right? So when we do BIPOC, you know, to me, we're often doing that to minimize, you know, and one of my elders told me before, with every great fortune is a great felony. And so the great felony is the mid-Atlantic slave trade in America. That's where our great fortune came from. We got 200 plus years of, of labor we don't have to pay for. Of course we're gonna get rich, right? So so here's, here's the thing. I, I don't use the BIPOC acronym because I wanna make sure when I'm talking about black people, I'm talking about black people. The school I worked at, I didn't have a BIPOC population. 
we were 99.98% black children. So I use the term black, right? And even, even now, as I wrestle with, uh, as we're talking about language, as I wrestle with, you know, my, my brown brothers and sisters, there's a argument, there's a conversation around Latino, Latinx, et cetera. I often defer to who I'm with because I have friends of that of the of that population who tell me rock use Latinx. I have other friends who say, nah, Latinx is a Eurocentric moniker thrown upon us. We use Latino, right? And, and even, you know, with the gender reality of the O and the A, I've still been informed by friends to use Latino versus Latinx. So I say all that because we have to begin to defer to the people that we're talking about, about how they'll be named. So in this space of language, it's really a lazy way to not be deliberate in our work, right? So if we're talking about indigenous people, then damn it, stop trying to catchphrase us and say, We've, you know, we've done these things against the indigenous population that we now have to make amends for. And so we're gonna do these things for the indigenous population. These are things we've done against the Asian American Pacific Islander population. And we're going to now make it. So, so own the fact that, you know, don't, don't try to lump us all together in that respect. And I'll tell you another reason why this extends beyond word, beyond just language. When we get into the space of business, and money and the bottom line for America is the dollar. As we talk about equity, inclusion, uh, equity diversity and inclusion, we often use BIPOC because I can hire someone who isn't the people I fear, right? I, I, I can hire, and, and here in DC it happens all the time, I'll see them hire a Asian Pacific Islander woman. Oh, we do BIPOC, but you have no black people in your organization and in this city, you know, Washington, D.C. is 48% African-American as the population. We're the largest population group in the city. You have no Black people in your organization. Oh, we have lots of BIPOC people. Okay, we have, you might have a brother from India. You might have a Latino brother or sister. You might have an Asian Pacific Islander brother or sister. But you have no Black people. So we'll use BIPOC as a way to still be exclusive. Because again, in, in the American mindset, there are there's a hierarchy to who's welcome and who isn't. So I often just go for black, I go for Latino, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when I'm using language. I choose not to be lazy in that place. I'll abbreviate I've or we're to save, to save the characters. Mm -hmm. if we have for me as a, a white man of privilege, I will tell you that the intent, and I appreciate you calling out the intent, yeah. but also the fact that you can, we can risk being lazy about this. Yeah. And that it can be easy for me to find a word that's comfortable and feel good about myself. But the whole point of this work is not to find comfort in that language, but to, to find authentic representation in the language that you use. Yeah. And I think as I process all that you just said, I, I can only be authentic in the use of the language if I'm deliberate, which means I have to pay attention to the people in the room or on the call. And I really have to pay attention to the language that's being used. And, and that, that means really paying attention. That means really showing up. Let's come back around to something that you mentioned, which is this isn't strictly about education. This really is about the broader society and the stakes are high and the stakes have always been high. As you mentioned with 
every great fortune, there's a great felony. And I think it's it's 100% on point that the 200-year boon derived on the backs of an enslaved population of Black people. And it carries into the workforce today in terms of representation. And I want to call it out, not just in the representation, but in something that I've experienced, and I don't make light of this, but it's also in the in the cultural affect of corporations. Yeah. So stay with me here, because mm-hmm. I previewed this for you once before. There is a difference between black meetings and white meetings. And I'm just curious, uh, as a black man, as a white man here, if we could compare notes a little bit. Okay. All right. And I don't know if it's reflective of, well, it won't have the same depth to properly reflect the issues we just talked on about language and about the systemic and historical racism that you've helped articulate today. Right. But let's just take a small slice of that and let's talk about meetings. So I was in a meeting with you, actually. Well, I wasn't in a meeting with you, but <laughs> I listened to you present alongside some really accomplished educators and leaders. And I've seen this before in other meetings where I am you know, outnumbered 20 to 1, meaning I'm the sole or one of very few uh, white cisgendered men in a room. But it's in those meetings that you take the time to acknowledge all the issues we've talked about today. And you did something special that last time, which was you had a moment of silence for your Asian brothers, or excuse me, for your Asian sisters who were murdered uh, mm-hmm. in the Atlanta area. Right. I just want to call out that there is not a, an all white meeting in any corporate America that did the same. I'm telling you now, I don't have to have been there to know it, that if I was in a meeting later that day and they all looked like me, mm-hmm. we would not have even mentioned it. Right. And that is, it's interesting in a research context, but it's troubling in a cultural context. I, I guess I don't even know what to do. I just wanted to name that and start comparing notes because it's, it's something that we don't talk about at all. The difference between how a group of white people who feel like they might be woke because they're doing DEI and they're checking boxes, hiring Asia PAC, uh, uh, you know, indigenous people perhaps, but are entirely ignoring members of the black community that live all around them. I mean, there's all these issues, but man, it just comes back to how you show up. So, so here's, here's what's problematic and I'll just, I'll just shoot it out there um, because I, I listened to your podcast. That was my question for you, Jim. Mm. I have to think of another question, but I literally was going to ask, I said, look, you know, when we did our moment of silence, because quite frankly, more times than not, if you're if you're having certain levels of financial success in America, you I, as a black man I have to be in white meetings. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. they have the luxury of not having to be in meetings that are run primarily by black people. So mm-hmm. that's a privilege. So I was going to actually ask you the question, you know, how you know why doesn't this show up in white meetings? This is my question to you when I get to ask you a question. But all that aside, yeah, you know, I I I think definitely that. You know, when we do that, uh, well, let me be specific. When I do that in meetings, it's because I recognize that we all come to this work having to traverse white society to get to where we are. We, we have to deal with, you know, the news where someone's been shot, the news where someone's, you know, murdered another Black man, or the news where someone's shot up 
you know, uh, a store killing multiple Asian Pacific Islander, you know, brothers and sisters. Like, so I recognize that, you know, as people, as, as varying peoples of, you know, the global majority, we all come to the work having at some point or another, just by living in America, we've had to traverse white supremacy to get here. So I think, you know, Covey or, you know, whomever else, they'll talk about the check-ins, the weather checks at the beginning of the meeting. Mm -hmm. That's our weather check. It's kind of like, hey, I already know certain things happen in the world. And whether it's front of mind or back of mind, I know it's on our mind. Let's just take a moment to decompress and give thought to that so we can find our way through and to the business of the day, still keeping the reality of that experience alive. It helps us, it helps remind us who we're working for and what we're working for. I just quite, quite frankly, you know, to the question I was going to ask you is, why doesn't that exist in white meetings? Because my assumption is immediately because it doesn't resonate with that population because it's not, it's not people that they either look like or they're not loved ones of theirs. Or quite frankly, you know, there's a, it goes back to that unspoken hierarchy, right? It's, it's what you said earlier. Well, why didn't he comply? Or what did they do? It's the, it's the subconscious, you know, rationalizing, you know, death of people who don't look like them. Um, and that was going to be my question to you, quite frankly. So. All right. So you're going to have to come up with another question then. You have, yeah, I got to think about well, it. Let's come but, to me. <laughs> so you, you, you think about that while I think out loud about why it doesn't show up yeah. in some of these meetings. And by the way, the subtext to that question is, well, if it doesn't show up in those meetings, Jim, why don't you bring it up? So that's going to be a question I'm going to have to grapple with a little bit. But Rock, if, if I was in a meeting the day after that uh, shooting, and I said, can we just take a moment to acknowledge our Asian brothers and sisters who were murdered? I would get the strangest looks from all the people in that room who look like me. They would, they would honestly think, Jim, you've lost your mind. There's a group of people who would say, Jim's very sweet. Isn't that lovely? But they wouldn't actually invest in it. And there's maybe one or two who would be like, wow, I, it's about time we're doing this. But overall, I think the sad truth is it just wouldn't occur to us to have that moment. So why the lack That's, of humanity? I don't why, have why an answer. Why well, the lack of, the, I'll tell you, let me, let me give you a, let me, let me reverb off that. Why the lack of humanity? Because our privilege just comes so naturally to so many of us. It's just so easy to take for granted the things that we have and to discount all of the inequities that suppress people of color, people of, uh, who are not born in the U.S., uh, people who don't have the same status of citizenship or the same socioeconomic status. Uh, I think we just come by it so easily. We just we just take it for granted as naturally as breathing air and feeling safe. We just take for granted that it's not our problem. And that's the problem. And so I, I, I push back on that a bit because there are rooms, if, if you're in, in white meetings, quote unquote, there are rooms that if you still said the name Michael Vick, they would have a visceral response to his name because he killed a dog. Right. Right. There's no there's no visceral response to the pain of another human being. So I think it goes a little deeper. I think I, I would offer up it's probably a little more subconsciously sinister in that in that degree, because, you know, we're, we're a decade, probably 14 years later, and we still have people who will shout down Michael Vick for killing a dog. Ooh. 
and not to say a dog's life isn't important, not at all. But I think you get what I'm saying is I that, that, yeah, you know, th there's no one saying, "Oh my God, let's," rem uh, you know, there's no one saying, "Let's let's let's remember what happens to these other human beings." In New York City, I want to say it was a year ago, or maybe it's been two by now. There was an African American man who was bird watching, and yeah. the the woman, the white woman, with her yeah. dog, called him, uh, called the police on him. Yep. created a big thing and there was a lot of commentary about how could she treat the dog that way right she and, was the dog's chain. Right, right exactly right and uh folks that wasn't the issue of the day right the, you know yeah it's a shame the dog was uh, mistreated but how about that man getting the cops called on him for bird watching in the age where we know black men can get killed for bird watching because they get killed for having cell phones because right. they get killed for all sorts of ridiculous reasons right yeah, and, and so you know and, and so to what you said what what really stuck with me is if you brought it up in meetings how people would respond i i, I want to say it's important to bring it up in meetings i think it's important to do that work i wonder if you or or you know some of your white colleagues some of my white friends go into meetings thinking about doing it and are they weighing it against some cost for sure for sure i'm sure they are i don't mind uh, telling you that where opportunities have presented themselves it has cost me and i and i wear it hmm, how do i want to say this let me share this not as a way to uh, prove to you that i'm woke or mm -hmm. to demonstrate in some self self-serving way my allyship but only so that you know it is possible for people to weigh the cost and still make the investment. And I wrote about this uh, on actually on a LinkedIn post last year. There was a moment in a meeting when, where I thought I was standing to the side with respectful silence, I was called out for my silence as being complicit. And it took me a while to understand that in being silent, this was right soon after murder of George Floyd, I was silently giving witness to my colleagues, my black colleagues who were feeling pain. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize was that in that silence, what I thought was respectful could be and rightfully be received as uh, complicity. Mm -hmm. So that got me really thinking, what is the cost of standing quietly by? So it wasn't long after actually, I took a moment and I met with four different white CEOs of organizations. And I wrote about this too, because I needed people to see this and to hear it. And each of the four organizations with whom I worked were run by uh, white men. And I told them it's time as an organization and as a leader in the industry for you to put out a statement. It's the least you could do setting aside the systemic work that I think you have to do. And Rock, this was the conversation I was having with CEOs. Mm -hmm. telling them the least you can do is put a statement out in support of the protests, the movements, the education, the effort that's required around this death and so many others, like you mentioned, Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, right. now so many more. So four conversations and I had four outcomes. One was 100% right. We need to do this help me how. And so I helped him craft a statement and he's gone on to do good work. He's got specific goals for improving his DEI composition. The second one was, yes, I don't fully understand, but I know it's the right thing to do. 
please don't do this so it comes off as marketing. Right. I thought that was pretty good too. I can't say that they've moved systemically forward, but at least they did in the moment what I asked. The third was, I don't think we can do this. It feels like everyone's doing it. I'm not so sure. Two weeks later, they said, I've thought about it. We need to do this. It's the right thing to do. All right, so they came around. Small organization, they're getting there. The fourth one was the most interesting. They said, I don't think we can do that. And then when I got to the CEO, I, that was with the COO. And then I talked to the CEO and he said, look, I don't want to go out there and endorse a response to all this stuff, rioting and looting. I just don't think that's good for us. And I don't think that's the message we want to support. And, and so we're not going to do that. And it was three days later, they fired me because mm -hmm. I pushed back pretty hard. Right. Uh, and I said, well, we had our conversation. I don't need to belabor the point. It was just a one-on-one -on -one conversation. There was no recording. There was no podcasting or live streaming or whatever you want to call it. It was just a conversation that I needed to have with these four white men. Mm -hmm. And and one of them cost me a job, cost me a client. It didn't end my world, but you know, in some ways I'm, I'm reluctant to share that story because it does sound self-serving. But on the other hand, I kind of wear it proudly, if that makes sense. I feel like yes. it's a very small thing, but it's, it's at least something. There's a couple directions that my mind went when you, when you gave me that, that story. First one is, yeah, absolutely. Like I, you know, I think it was definitely the right thing to do that you had those conversations. If more people have those conversations, it's less taboo, right? If more of your colleagues stepped into those brave spaces to call out the issues that they see existing, we'll begin to break that issue down. And quite frankly, you know, it's an issue that we didn't create, right? So it is, it is absolutely white people's problem, you know? And so it's, it's almost asking, by not speaking up, it's almost asking, the ones who are receiving this white supremacist pushback to be the ones to change the minds and hearts, um, where there's nothing else, there's nothing more powerful than, you know, a, a brother, sister, son, or daughter in the home challenging racism at the dinner table, right? That's where the, that's where the fight, you know, is really won. So I think it's powerful in that way. And the other thing I'd say, Jim, to be quite honest, is, you know, however you could professionally do it without the risk of slander or libel whichever one it is like you know amongst that that network of people that company should should have to own the fact that they're not willing mm -hmm. you know and i i tell people in a lot of the trainings i do as an organization ben and jerry's probably had the most forward thinking mm -hmm. you know position on anti-racism and white supremacy and so i often tell people as an organization, you can't be softer than ice cream. <laughs> I you love know, that. When, when it comes <laughs> to anti-racism, you can't be softer than ice cream. You know, and and, and that's that's an intentional play on words because damn it, if they aren't you know at the forefront of at, at the very least just saying it, man. Like as a matter of fact, Jim, it's it's now become wall art for me. We love <laughs> white supremacy. That is what Ben and Jerry's has, you know, it, it was such a powerful message in the right time that, it, you know, that it sticks with me. Um, and, so I'm and, glad you did it. And I think more of your colleagues need to do the same. They do. And, and you know, what's, what's really fascinating is that we have a whole education industry 
Yeah. And we're getting really, as an industry, we're getting outflanked by an ice cream maker. Exactly right. And here's the thing, man. Like you're you're so right about that. And here's the here's the issue I have with that is that you know there's an old phrase, there was an old saying that said, you know, we can change and fix the educational system overnight. The reason why we don't is because then we we'll have to own the fact that we always had the power to do this, right? And 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 with that comes all sorts of you mm. know issues with the fact that you know we we can absolutely change, we can absolutely invest the right dollars change, you know, some curriculum, address mindset in our hiring processes. And we can actually change what we're doing tomorrow. And we've had a year and a half. We could have done it now. Like this would have been a prime time. We should go back to school and almost nothing should be the same. We've had a year and a half to make sure that nothing is the same as it was when we left. Nothing should be the same. Nothing we just invested so much time into, you know, holding on to the status quo. We've invested money and time into making sure it's the same. I would love to meet the brave superintendent who says, at least in this school district, we're going to make sure school is not what it was. Well, I'll tell you what, coming out of this conversation, I am not who I was <laughs> 75 minutes ago. And I, and I owe you a debt of gratitude for helping me see that. Because you're right, we, we really can't use moments big and small pandemics with a capital P, literally a pandemic, we should not aspire to return to normal because let's be honest, the normal wasn't that great. And for the quote unquote, smaller pandemics, the not capitalized P, but the pandemic of bias, racism, of systemic suppression, actually, as I say that, it should be a capital P, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. We can't return to these things. We can't hold on to those things. And yet we do. And I've even demonstrated here in my own way, some of the things that I hold on to. And in this moment, you see me really trying to lean in and work on this and get after it, but it's, it's not easy. And I, I guess it shouldn't be easy, but on the other hand, it shouldn't be this hard. To that, I, you know, I, I feel you on that, but I would, I would offer up, I mean, as hard as it is to have the conversation, imagine how hard it is living it. I can't, I can't imagine. You I know? really can't. I cannot imagine. And I can only, I can only listen with intent and with respect. But then on the flip side, I cannot wait around and ask someone to use my voice. I've got to right. go ahead and use it. Right. And I appreciate you helping me think through a lot of these things. The conversation is an ongoing one and I hope we get to keep it going. I would love to, <laughs> I would love to. Rocket, I invited you before we came on to think about a question and then you went ahead and snuck it in midway through about the nature of meetings. But I'm wondering if you have any other questions that have come up, it's your time to just put me on the spot. I mean, this is a podcast, it's called Jim Questions Everything. But now I invite you to ask me a question. What do you got? I appreciate your reflections during the last 75 minutes. I, my question is, because we recognize that anti-racism is an active work, it's an active thing that you have to be engaged in, who are the three people you're gonna have conversations with after you leave this session, you know, with the, with the desire to move the needle around, you know, anti-racism? Who are the three people you're gonna talk to next? You might not be able to put that, you know, 
on the podcast. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but, but, but that's right. That would, be, that would be the question I would ask: Is that you identify three people, and that you begin to have, you know, more of the conversations you have with those CEOs? Okay, good, good question. So, yeah, I won't name someone, but right. uh, John, if you're out there, get ready for a call. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but let me let me think about this. So, three people, I'm going to have this. Uh, I'm going to carry this conversation with me. Let me just think out loud here. One of them will for sure, uh, won't be a person, it'll be a group of people and that'll be my kids. So my kiddos are uh, upper elementary and middle school and uh, they've heard me talk a lot about this work, not as an expert, but as a person who's trying to learn about it. Right. And I think if, if among the, the things that I'm trying to give them is not just a sensibility and a language and an understanding, but also I'm trying to model what it's like to pause, reflect, and recognize our own everything, our own privilege and our own lack of understanding. And I need to keep having that conversation with those kids. Quick sidebar, my son, you've heard me talk about him in the past, is really good at earning money. He works hard. God love him. He's mowing lawns. He's already putting flyers out today for lawnmowing because he wants to buy a car. And I said, listen, we're going to have a talk about what it means when you're driving a car and we had the talk about the talk that you have with yeah. your kids and it's a different talk and yeah. what's fascinating my people my white privileged people don't realize the talk that you have which is if you get pulled over here's the things you have to do to not yeah. get shot yeah. and my son started to process this now he's not of driving age but i needed to hear i needed him to hear that 2 years before he gets a license so that it, it's not the first time, but also so that he understands it's just such a different world for him than it is for other people. So I'm going to have this conversation with my kids. The second person, but I'll, I'll really identify it as a group of people, will be my team. So I have a small team of uh, full-timers and freelancers, and I've been feeding them some of this stuff because I know there's a young person on my team, and she's you know, God has to go through this process. And I don't think I'm her shepherd for this in its entirety, but I'm at least trying to make it okay for her to have questions and to be ready to engage in those conversations. But I think we have to do more about that. I have, I have called out some folks in my work and I want her to see me doing more of that so that she knows it's okay. So that's my second person, all right? And I'm giving you groups. Okay. But here's the one that makes me sweat a little bit, but it's kind of why I was excited to talk to you. And that is, I really have to talk to members of my community. So I'm running for school board in our little, <laughs> in our little bubble of a community here. And it's, it's really interesting. We have a lot of privilege in our community to be sure with some socioeconomic mix, but our district is really 87 and a half percent white. So just to give you a sense of the breakdown. And with that, I think we've had a, a very, very um, troubling absence of cultural competency and awareness. And I've even had members of the community uh, contact me, ask if I would protect them from uh, transgender girls, or if I would make sure that we don't have curriculum that acknowledges the Black Lives Matter movement, or that we don't ever consider the 1619 curriculum. And if you don't know what those things are, you do the work, go look them up, listeners. Mm -hmm. But for me, 
I've been skirting around that a little bit, Rock. I think it's in part because I want to get on the school board and then advocate for change. But on the other hand, I don't want to come by it dishonestly. I don't want to come by it and sneak in. I need people to hear it like from the start. And I need my kids and my coworkers to hear it, that I'm unapologetically leaning in on this work. And if you can't handle it, maybe you should, I don't know, move or don't vote for me at the very least. But I think the time has passed for us to be careful and considerate of a racist's feelings just because they might live down the street. I have no investment in your well-being if you're committed to being a racist. So I think that's the third person that comes to mind is that community member who it's not my problem if they're not ready to hear it because I'm ready to say it. Thank you for all those shares. I have a, just if I can share a quick thought about, about two of them. Um, when you mentioned your son, I began to think about my son who's 13 and the fact that I've had to have those kind of conversations with him most of his life, the sad part of the reason why it's so important that you have those conversations with your son is because I and other fathers of black children are constantly robbing their children of moments of their childhood by laying this burden on, you know, on a boy when he's nine. That's part of the crime of this kind of uh, of this kind of you know racism that we have in this country. So I definitely think the only way that my child begins to have a childhood is if we get to the point where no children need these talks mm. because you started having these talks with your children, right? And then to the to the to the school board piece, which I'm very excited to hear that you're doing because like I said to you in the past, I'll say again, you are absolutely a good, good man. And I think that is what shines through in everything you do. When you get to the place where you're gonna, you're gonna have this conversation openly with their community, if they decide to not support you with their votes, I would just offer up one reminder that the people who do sit on the school board, they were given the opportunity to serve you and your interests. That's what, that's what public office is. I'm asking for a chance to work for the people. So, you might even have a little more power now because by design, they work for you. They work for you and everyone in your community who feels like you, who might not have the same bravery that you have right now. So I would say that lots of times the minority is very loud, right? The, can you protect me from transgender? Can you not push 16, 19? Can you make sure? Like that's the probably the minority of your population, but they've gotten so comfortable in our country that they're very loud. They're the, you know, there's a silent majority who feel the way you do is what I like to believe. And you're working, you're working towards their desire. So keep up the work, hold the conversation openly, coalition build in private. And if you, if you happen to not get the votes, put the pressure on their backs because they, they got hired to work for you and your family and never let them forget it. I love that framing. You're absolutely right. And, and it is very powerful to consider that the vocal minority too yeah. often wins out simply because they are that. They are vocal. They are loud. And that's powerful. Using our voices is powerful. And I got to tell you, I love your voice, Rock. I love not only the tone and tenor of your voice, but the things that you've shared out with me. And I wish we could talk forever, but You've been so generous with your time and your insights. It's meant a lot to 
be in this moment with you. I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me, Jim. I appreciate it as well. Um, whenever, whenever the conversation arises, um, you know, we can definitely talk whenever. I, I love talking to you. Um, it's enlightening for me. It drains off some things for me as well. And you've always been very open to ideas that aren't yours and you welcome them into a space to figure it all out. And that's really what, that's really what we're pushing here is start having a conversation to figure it all out. And you do a great job of that. And I love, you know, I love, you know, Jim questions everything because that, that helps me with this as well. Thank you. And I, I want to say thank you, brother. Indeed. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs>